Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Philippians. As you're doing that, let me just uh, uh, commend you for how you listen to uh, the Scripture. Um, feel that uh, this is a good church in that uh, it's been my experience in the first few months that I've been here that you uh, look to the Scriptures with anticipation when it's opened uh, before you. Uh, I want to uh, commend you for uh, bringing your Bibles. Um, or uh, your devices, uh, in some cases, uh, or looking very closely uh, to your neighbor and their Bible and their device, and uh, spending time really focusing on the Scripture. Uh, One of the things I'll I'll try to do in the sermons is uh, just keep referring back to the text, so it really helps if you've got a copy of the text of Scripture with you. And my goal, my simple goal uh, in any sermon is for, uh, for the people who are listening uh, to be able to follow along in the text of Scripture, for my comments to only in, um, help in, their, in our interpretation of the text. I don't want to stand in the way of it at all. I don't want to tell stories necessarily to, uh, to draw you to some sort of personality but I want to, uh, I, I really long to make God's Word known um, because that is what will change people's lives. And so I trust that as a church, we look forward to the time when the Word of God is open and that whoever the preacher is standing at the front preaching for whatever service that our goal and intent would be to clearly demonstrate what the Scripture says and then to make application uh, to our lives. It's been fun to do that in Philippians. It's been helpful to me. I've been greatly challenged and convicted as a preacher in different ways, uh, and I look forward to closing out the book with you. Um, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Philippians 4, verses 10 through 20. It's a long text and uh, one that will require both the morning and the evening service. And so I would really encourage you to try to come back this evening. I know we all have different plans and, and so on, but at 5 o'clock, Uh, This evening, uh, I plan on wrapping up the second portion of this text, and it's a very important text about the the, uh, Philippians' attitude or their mindset toward Paul the Apostle, and so I'd encourage you to come and join us. You started the series with us. You might as well finish it with us, and uh, come and join us uh, this evening, if at all possible. Philippians 4, verses 8 to 9, right before our text, Paul says, finally, brothers... Then he gives two different characteristics of genuine Christian character. In verse 8, last week, I mentioned that I feel that the focus is on the command to think about certain things uh, or think in appropriate ways. In that text, Paul calls us to do battle in the arena for our minds and to have the right kind of thought life or right thought patterns in life, we should be thinking about the noble sort of things he describes in verse 8. But then last week, I, I not only said that, but I tried to make the connection that Paul does between our thoughts and our external actions or our behavior. Because verse 9, the command is, do these things, practice these things. Our thought life is important for a multitude of different reasons, but one is because it communicates to our behavior. 
And so if you've got questions about that, you can go back and listen to last week's sermon or read Philippians 4, 8, 9. So you come to verses 10 through 20, Paul continues to emphasize proper thinking. But he does so by briefly recalling or reflecting the way the Philippian believers had been successful in, their, in the area of the mind. Specifically, look with me in verse 10 for a second. Here Paul says in this verse that, if you look at the middle part, that you have revived or renewed your concern for me. See that in your Bibles? That word concern is in infinitive form, the word that we've been tracing all throughout the book that could be translated thoughts. Paul says, you have renewed your thoughtful concern for me. As a matter of fact, in the same verse, he uses a different form of that same word again when he says in the, the middle to end of verse 10, you were indeed concerned for me. That could be translated, indeed, you were thinking of me. And so with this phrase, Paul is continuing to keep the believer's attention focused on the mind and the way that they were able to care for him. As we look at these verses this morning and this evening, I will describe the specific situations in Rome that Paul was experiencing in prison in his own house, and then I'll also describe the situation of the Philippian readers, the original readers in Philippi, and I recognize that this text is really describing a a very specific scenario between the, the author, Paul, and his readers, the Philippians, But in looking at that, I'm sure that we'll be able to draw or make very good applications for how we should have a caring mindset as a local assembly. It should be said of us as members of Colonial Baptist Church that we are concerned for each other, that we care for each other. And uh, so my goal is that we would learn two lessons this morning and this evening about how to properly care for each other in this assembly. This morning, we'll look at Paul's attitude. We'll learn from Paul in verses 10 through 13. This evening, we'll learn from the Philippians' attitude in verses 14 through 20. Okay, But let's read the text. Philippians 4 and verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. 
I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering <clears throat> and a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to, to God. Verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's look first here at the attitude of Paul in verses 10 through 13. If I were to summarize his attitude in a sentence, I would think that what Paul is communicating here in these verses is that he is content even though or even when he didn't have a lot by earthly standards. He is content even though he doesn't have a lot. This point in the letter to the Philippians, we don't know a whole lot about Paul as the author, where he is and what he's doing, or the Philippians. We've been able to detect throughout the book that Paul's in prison somewhere, probably in Rome, and that the Philippian believers were concerned for him because of this. In the very beginning of our study back in Philippians 1, and you can turn the page for a second if you want, in verses 3 through 11, Paul starts off by uh, describing his relationship with the Philippian believers a little bit there. He says that uh, they have a very special relationship. They enjoy fellowship or partnership in the gospel together. He says that he is thankful for them continually, that he, jo he joyfully prays for them, verses 4 and 5. He says in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1, that he believes that God is doing a work in them and that they will, be, um, they will be presented perfect before the Lord one day. And then in verses 9 through 11 of Philippians chapter 1, he told us that his relationship with them is such that he engages in very focused intercession on their behalf. And so if you're looking for like details about Paul's experience, what he's going through or what the Philippians are going through, you see that they do have a special relationship, and that's how he starts the book. But it's interesting to me that he also ends the book with a personal reflection about his relationship uh, to the Philippians. And in verses 10 through 13 of chapter 4, you can turn back there now in your Bibles, uh, Paul emphasizes here his own demeanor towards them. And the way that he does that is he first acknowledges a gift that he had received from the Philippian congregation, a financial gift uh, in verse 10, and then he adds a very quick disclaimer uh, about his own conduct or approach toward that gift in verses 11 through 13. So a very simple outline this morning, two points. First, Paul's initial recognition of their gift, verse 10. Look with me at verse 10. It says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Verse 10 here, Paul says that he something causes him great joy or rejoicing. Actually uses a word here, and an adverb, gladly, or I'm sorry, uh, greatly, that could be translated immensely. So I did a, a, a brief word study on that this week. I found that word is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It was shocking to me. Now, I like to pronounce the Greek word just for fun. 
The word is megalos. Okay, and I'm going to return to why I pronounce that here in a moment. The word greatly comes from this word megalos. It's, it's not found in the New Testament, but it is found in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Paul would have had access to, or something very much like it. Okay, so in other words, the word greatly, although no other author in the New Testament uses it, it was in Paul's Bible. Okay, and uh, the word greatly is used, uh, for instance, often in the book of Job to describe the, the sort of sorrow that Job experienced when he lost his family, his friends, his wealth, and his health. Okay? He sorrowed greatly. But it's interesting to me that this word is also attached to the word rejoiced in the, in the Old Testament. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 9, there we learn that David the king rejoiced greatly when all of Israel brought their gifts to establish or build the temple. When it was finished, David rejoiced greatly. I think it might be possible that, that Paul has David's rejoicing in mind when he thinks about the gift that the Philippian believers had given to them. So just like David rejoiced greatly when Israel sacrificed and brought all their things to establish or build the temple, so Paul rejoices in the sacrifice of this church and giving to meet his needs as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul's joy in the Lord was mega, okay? Ultimately, his joy is sourced in the Lord, but the occasion of his joy here in this text in writing Philippians was that they had given very sacrificially to support him in his ministry. But I want you also to notice in verse 10 what I'm going to call the nature of the tone of this thanksgiving Uh, from the apostle. Uh, To be transparent, several times when I've read through Philippians, I've kind of run across this, and I've always had a bit of a question about it. But let me show you what is perplexing, or was at least perplexing to me. Look in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, it's these two little words, at length, you have revived your concern for me. You ever notice those words at length? How does that strike you as a reader? If you're reading through this, Paul says, at length. It could almost be translated, finally. Paul says, finally, your attention to me has been renewed. Uh, He had done something like this earlier in the book. You probably don't remember it. Go back to Philippians 2 and verse 29. Uh, Philippians 2, 29 and 30, he's describing the great ministry of Epaphroditus. Remember this elderly man who ministered to the point of death so that he could help support Paul in his imprisonment? Epaphroditus was from the church of Philippi, but he had come to Rome to help Paul. Notice verse 29. He says, So receive him, that's Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete perplexing statement here. Quotation marks around it. What was lacking in your service to me? 
come across that passage as well. You know, Paul is uh, describing their service or their support of him, their ministry to him, and he, he describes it as that which was lacking to him. So go back to Philippians 4. The question I want to consider for just a moment is, is Paul giving kind of an underhanded compliment to the Philippians when he writes this letter? Is he kind of subtly, sarcastically thanking them, but suggesting maybe that they should have done more? It's interesting to me, as I got into the commentary literature this past week, I realized that that's actually how some of the commentators take this passage. They say that, yes, he's thanking them, but he's kind of subtly indicating maybe they should have done more. That's not how I take it, though. So uh, if you do, uh, fine, we can talk afterwards, but that's not what I think is going on. Okay, now, to to help you understand Paul's nature, and why I would say at last, or uh, that which was lacking in your faith, why would he make statements like that? Um, I think we need to understand one thing foundationally, and that is that the Philippian church had repeatedly given gifts to Paul the Apostle. Okay? And I want to show you this in your Bibles. We're going to take about five minutes just to show you that at least on three occasions, this church gave abundantly Uh, to Paul the Apostle. Look, for instance, in Philippians 4, verses 15 and 16. We can learn first, just after Paul plants the church at Philippi when he's in Thessalonica, the Philippian believers gave financially to him. Verse 15, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Verse 16, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And so what we need to understand here initially is after Paul plants the church at Philippi, as soon as he leaves, this church starts extending themselves and looking for opportunities to give to him. And while he's still in the province of Macedonia, which is where Thessalonica, the city, is located, when he goes up to Thessal, where, I'm sorry, the city of Philippi is located, He goes up to a neighboring city, the city of Thessalonica, and he's still in Macedonia, this province, and the Philippian church is giving, as Paul says here, once and again, repeatedly, to support Paul in his apostolic ministry. This occurs in uh, the years 50 to 51 AD. This church was a giving church. But then turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, I want to suggest that they not only gave to Paul right after he planted their church while he was in Thessalonica, that this church also gave to help support some famine-stricken believers in the churches of Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verses 1 through 5. I'm just going to read the verses. I'll briefly comment on them, and then we'll understand more about the nature of the Philippians' gift. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 1 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That would include churches like Philippi, maybe also Thessalonica or Berea. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and 
beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. It's my opinion here that Paul is speaking of the Philippian believers again here who gave themselves and their resources not only to help the poor believers in Jerusalem who were suffering from a famine, but also to help support Paul and his other apostolic co-ministers of the gospel. You're still in 2 Corinthians there. Have you ever really looked closely at verse 2 and how he describes these churches of Macedonia, churches like Philippi? He says they were greatly afflicted. See that in your Bible? They were experiencing extreme poverty, but in abundance of joy, they gave generously. They not only gave within the means that God had given to them, they gave beyond it or above it. By describing the church of Philippi, I would would say something like this. They were a dirt poor church who joyfully gave the work of Paul the Apostle in support of these ministers. This act of giving, I believe, occurs in about 55 to 56 AD. So about four or five years after they gave to Paul repeatedly in Macedonia, now they're putting themselves in financial peril they give so much to support the work that Paul is engaging in here. But then go back to Philippians chapter 4 for a moment and notice that finally when Paul writes Philippians itself, he thanks them for another gift. Okay, and so we got these different occurrences. Right after he plants a church, they give time and time again. Five years later, when he's generating a gift for the churches of Jerusalem, they give out of their extreme poverty, generously. But then right before he writes Philippians, probably in about 60 to 61 AD, another four years has elapsed since they gave in their extreme poverty, but now they're giving to Paul again. They hear he's in prison, and they're giving to support him. Notice Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. This extremely poor church gave to him again while he was in house imprisonment so that they might lighten his financial burden and support him in ministry. So so in light of Paul's attitude, about the sacrificing nature of this church, especially in 2 Corinthians 8, I don't think that Paul is belittling them for not giving enough. He's not saying, you know, you really could have done more. Poor Epaphroditus, look, he almost died because you you didn't give enough. Instead, Paul thanks them, but he also wants them to know that he does not need any more. God takes care of all of his needs as an apostle. Perhaps Paul realizes just how sacrificial this church is likely to be. And so throughout this text, he will remind them over and over, I've received full payment and more. My needs are met. God will also meet those needs. In verse 10, Paul uses poetic language to picture this thoughtful act from the Philippians. He says it, 
their concern has been revived or renewed. That's a botanical metaphor. Their concern had begun to grow or blossom again like a flower or like a small tree or beautiful tree. So Paul recognizes here in verse 10, not the blessing that their money was to him, but the blessing that their intention represented. They cared for him. In other words, as I look at verse 10, the the actual grounds of Paul's joy does not consist in the fact that his needs were met. Instead, he's thankful that their gift reflects their love for him. And this brings Paul mega joy. Okay, so verse 10, he recognizes their gift. But that leads to, uh, almost immediately, to a disclaimer in verses 11 through 13. A disclaimer. Where Paul basically shows, uh, I'm so thankful for your gift, but I'm not dependent on the financial gifts of any one person or any group of people. Look with me again in verse 11. It says uh, there in your Bibles, uh, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, it gives this disclaimer here in verse 11. Matter of fact, uh, I don't know if you mark in your Bibles, but in verse 11, the first two words are the sign that he's going to qualify this a bit. He's going to say something more about it. And he does the same exact thing in verse 17. As a matter of fact, the text that we're looking at this morning and this evening is extremely parallel. In verse 10, he recognizes their gift. You did give me these things. And then he gives disclaimers. Not that I needed them. And then in verse 14 through 16, he recognizes their gift again. He talks about this financial support that they've given to him. And then verse 17, he gives another set of disclaimers. Not that I really... And he continues here. And so I want to look briefly at these verses with you and see uh, this disclaimer and see what God can teach us primarily about the contentment of Paul the Apostle. Paul's disclaimer is that although he is thankful for their gift, he's not dependent upon the giving of people to support him in his apostolic ministry. But, but how could Paul say that, right? How could Paul say this? I mean, was he independently wealthy? There's some debate about that. I think probably not. I don't think tent making was the way to procure all kinds of money in the first century. Was he paid well by other churches? Well, I know the answer to that one. No. Instead, Paul could say this. They didn't need the Philippians' money because he had learned to be content with whatever God had given to him. See, he was content in whatever situation came up in life because of the provision of God. Verses 11 through 13, I would put a strong emphasis on the word contentment or content. Uh, The word that's used here, the Greek word, is not used again anywhere else in the New Testament. When the word for content is used in other literature, it speaks of having enough 
or having a sufficient amount. So for Paul, whose life was Christ, just enough or a sufficient amount was enough. In particular, Paul had learned to be content through two different sets of circumstances. And in verses 11 through 13, I would categorize these two sets. I would call one of them deprivation and the other one abundance. As Paul considers the different circumstances that he faced in his apostolic ministry, one of the ways he would describe them is that he faced deprivation in life while serving the Lord. I see this in several places in your Bible at this place. Um, Notice uh, especially at the beginning of verse 12, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Uh, For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content, that was verse 11, verse 12, I know how to be brought low. Okay, Uh, This way of saying it for, for Paul could be translated, I know how to be humbled which I believe is an allusion to what what Paul says about Jesus in chapter 2. Paul says, I too know what it means to be humbled in my apostolic ministry and labor. I think Paul is intentionally alluding to Christ here. But second, near the end of verse 12, he describes what it means to be brought low or to be humbled. He says, uh, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing four things, plenty, hunger, abundance, and need. See that? These four infinitives, plenty, hunger, abundance, need. I think with the second one and the fourth one, he's continuing to describe the deprivation that he faced as an apostle at times in his apostolic ministry. There were times where he faced hunger. He did not have sufficient food in his ministry, yet he was content. Yet enough. There were other times when he faced great need. I think that would be describing the insufficient shelter and clothing that at times Paul experienced in this life. I mean, can you ever remember a time like this? You ever had it this bad? Not enough food, not enough or sufficient clothing, no shelter? But Paul could. Men and women, when Paul experienced deprivation, I think this text reveals to us that he learned a very valuable lesson. He didn't have everything that he needed. In a particular case, this lesson was not wasted on him. I think the lesson he learned was something like this. Sometimes deprivation can teach us lessons in discipleship that we cannot learn while experiencing abundance or plenty. And while deprivation does have a value like that, it can also be dangerous for us as believers when we experience loss. We don't have what we feel is enough. And so in a moment of application here, I'd like for us to consider uh, our own attitudes presently. Perhaps you've been forced to go without something that you treasure or you, you value. I think it's very easy for us when we go through experiences like that to grow disgruntled. You know, this doesn't even have to happen in the arena of finances. So, you know, perhaps you're going through a difficult time of emotional or physical loss. 
and you're suffering with feelings of loss or anxiety through trying times, I want to encourage you, if that is true of you at this point, if you're experiencing great loss or deprivation, to be on the guard against feelings of frustration or anger because some other people in the assembly do not reach out to you the way that you think they should. Listen, people will never measure up to, to all of your expectations. We must find help in God. We must ask Him to help us in our times of deprivation, whether that's financial, emotional loss. We must ask Him to be content, to feel that we, yeah, we we might not have everything that we want in the financial realm, but we have enough. We have Jesus, and he's all that we need. Men and women, if we could just be content people, people satisfied with Christ alone, not people with mega expectations or mega needs, but mega joy in Christ and mega confidence that God will supply every need that I have. Ultimately, Paul was not driven to be poor or rich. He was driven to Christ and to accept whatever God brought across his path when it came to food and clothing and shelter. See, Paul did not approach church with an entitlement mentality. He did not look critically at other believers in the church who had more wealth and who didn't support him. He wasn't disgruntled or put off when other people in the assembly overlooked his needs. Instead, he knew, he knew from experience that God, God would always provide. He did and always would provide his needs. Perhaps Paul remembered that place in his Bible in the Psalms where the psalmist David reflects as an elderly man in Psalm 37, 25, where David says this, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Do you remember that? Is that a true principle of the scripture? Could we testify the fact that God meets all of our physical needs? Men and women, we need to be content with whatever God gives to us. We should not try to manipulate relationships here or the situation to conjure up ways for people to support us or our purposes. Instead, we should be content and know that God will adequately provide for us in all our situations. This has been a good motivation or, I guess, meditation for a new preacher. I find myself at times sketching out ways to accomplish God's plans and purposes for our church and the missions arm of our church and the seminary ministry associated with our church. I want to uh, take care of the facility that God has given to us. I I love to spruce it up. I I want to pay off an education building. I, I long to see our church members properly cared for regardless of their age ranges. I I want to see our missions program be robust. 
as I think it is, but I want it to see it continue to even grow. I want to be strategic. I want our seminary to be strong. But men and women, all of that takes hundreds of thousands of dollars. You put it all on paper, it looks really good, and then you start looking at the cost associated. You're like, oh boy. But God is never at an end of his resources. He owns the entire planet. And he can do whatever he wants to fulfill his purposes and plans in this assembly for his own honor and glory. And he can do it in such a way that everyone points their finger to God and says, look what God has done. We must be content people who know God will meet all of our needs. He'll take care of us. And he will empower us to fulfill his purpose. That leads us to one last part of this passage. That's verse 13. Still under the disclaimer, Paul kind of leads into this verse. It's an important verse. In verses 11 and 12, he thoroughly discussed the two major types of financial conditions that he had found in life, times of abundance and deprivation. But then Paul finally explains in verse 13 the secret to contentment. He has learned to be content in all of these different situations that is to do all things through Christ who gives him strength. As I look back over the text, I recognize I didn't really say a lot about plenty. I skipped a place in my notes. You know, there were times as well in Paul's apostolic ministry that he experienced abundant provision by God, where God gave him things extravagantly. And while perhaps we won't take the time to go back and look over all of that just for sake of time this morning, of course, we recognize that even one of the problems of abundance, right, is that we might not be content with what God has given to us. <laughs> But in verse 13, the way I see this verse connected here is uh, Paul finally explains the secret to the contentment that he has found. And verse 13 is a life verse for many believers, right? We use this verse for all kinds of different things. And I think that's appropriate because it says all things, okay? But but in its original setting or context, uh, what verse 13 is doing is Paul saying, "I I can deal with both deprivation and abundance and live well or live in a good way through Him who strengthens me. No one or nothing else could do it for Paul the Apostle. Christ was the great source of his strength to remain content and face life challenges appropriately. So as we look at verse 13, let's remember that context. The context specifically is that God can enable us to deal with whatever circumstances He brings our way in the realms of finances or care through Christ who strengthens Him. This morning, the focus has been primarily upon contentment. If we're going to be a church who properly cares for each other. It's going to be the church that we're going to be 
Two things need to be true of us. One, that we're all individually content with where God has us. Okay. That we don't come into church, sit in the pew, and just look for ways for people to serve us. Sure, there are times when we might be struggling spiritually and be wonderful to be encouraged in Christ, but I don't think it should be our default setting as a New Testament believer to be discontent or to be disgruntled looking for people to help us. If we could practice contentment, I think we'd be a church that properly cares for each other. This evening, what we're going to look at is if we could be a church that was generous and helping to support other people like the Philippian church, we would be a caring church with a caring mindset. And so I'd invite you to come back for that time as well this evening. Let's go to the Lord, though, in a brief moment of reflection as we close the service today. You close your eyes there, perhaps even leaving Philippians open before you, looking over verses 10 through 13. We first ask you, are you experiencing deprivation? Is there some sort of emotional loss, financial pressure or difficulties that you are experiencing? And in those experiences, are you content? Paul was content, and he was in prison for probably about two years. Has Christ been enough for you in the midst of your difficulties? Or have you been angry with people who didn't meet your expectations? That's the case. I'd encourage you to repent and to tell Jesus that you long for him to be the one and only true source of your contentment. That you would long to actually be able to live in a way where you'd say, you know, I've got Jesus and that's enough for me. I've got Jesus and I know God's going to take care of all my financial needs. He's going he's to take care of me. And so perhaps you could go to Christ and tell him that. Or are you experiencing abundance? Has your abundance been enough for you? Does your wealth mean more to you than Christ? I would say to you as well, repent and tell Jesus that you want Him to be enough for you. You want to be content in Him alone. Let's pray together. Father, as we close this service, we're thankful for Paul's sense of contentment and his desire to trust you. I'm thankful for the challenge that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So, Father, whether you bring to us this week deprivation or you bring abundance, may we leave here with mega joy in Christ because we know that you're enough and you will meet all of our needs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.